This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 41, Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3. Welcome to the last book of the Torah, the last speech Moshe delivers to the Jews before his death. Like most speeches, Moshe regales, Moshe informs, and Moshe motivates in the tradition of... It was on late duty one night when they brought in a badly wounded pilot from one of the raids. He barely talked. He looked up at me and Doc, he said, The odds were against us up there, but we went in anyway. I'm glad. The captain made the right decision. The pilot's name was George Zip. George Zip said that? The last thing he said to me, Doc, he said, sometime, crew is up against it. The brakes are beating the boys. Tell them to get out there and give it all they got. And win just one zip. Know where I'll be then, Doc, he said. That won't smell too good, that's for sure. Or... Hey! What's this lying around shit? Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is! Was it over when the... Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? Hell no! German? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Cause when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Moshe also recounts recent events, the successes, the failures, the quarreling and muttering and no trust showing and not listening and weeping, and the walking and the encamping and the drama with Moab and Ammon and the shock and awe that will rain down upon the peoples of the land as a result of what happened with the king of Og and his couch of iron, nine cubits in length and four in width, and with the king of Bashan, in whose land the tribes of Reuven, God, and half of Menashe settled as their tribal allotment. Moshe concludes chapter 3 by reminding the Jews that he will not cross the Jordan to see the good land, because, quote, Adonai was cross with me on your account, and he would not hearken to me. Adonai said to me, enough for you, do not speak to me any more about this matter. But, as Moshe says, he did have the opportunity to, quote, see it with your eyes, for you will not cross this Jordan. And God also told him to appoint Yehoshua as his successor for, quote, he will cross over before his people and he will cause them to inherit the land that you see. Moshe, it seems, is having a hard time with being excluded. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. Once again, and I think last time, I promise, I have to return to the documentary hypothesis before getting into this week's portion. The documentary hypothesis regards the Torah as consisting of independent, parallel, and complete narratives, which were subsequently combined into the current form by a series of redactors or editors, or R. 
The number of these narratives is usually set at four, with each source given a letter to denote its author or authors. So there's J, or the Yaoist source, E, the Elohist source, and P, or Priestly source, which we've covered at length in pretty much all the previous episodes, which leaves us with D, the Deuteronomist. The word Deuteronomy comes from the Latin by way of the Greek for second law, which in itself is a translation from the Hebrew of Mishneh HaTorah, a phrase employed in chapter 17, which literally means a copy of the law. And uh, this book is unique in many respects. It's mostly in first person singular, as in Moshe speaks in his own voice, which is why in the later prophetic books, Deuteronomy is often referred to as Sefer Torah Moshe, the book of the law of Moshe. But though it comes across as a singular organic text, there are anomalies. It has two introductions, two different kinds of blessings and curses, and appendices of various kinds, which we will talk about in coming episodes. Also, although Deuteronomy depends on the historical and legal traditions of the Tetrateuch, or the previous four books, from a plot perspective, it could have easily been left out without hampering the flow of the narrative except there would have been a hole where the theology should have been. In many respects, Deuteronomy breaks new ground, revising all the social and religious laws that were drawn from the older Tetrateuch. Social laws are elaborated and made to favor the distressed. For example, one cannot enter the house of the debtor to take a pledge. But more importantly, the religious sacred ritual laws are adapted to the new concept of centralization. Deuteronomy focuses on a handful of other theological concepts, such as the need to uproot and eliminate native cults, the significance of the exodus, covenant, and election, the demand that Israel serve God, the demand that Israel observe the law and keep the covenant, the importance of inheriting the land, and the notions of retribution and material motivation, or in other words, curses and blessings. We'll discuss these as they come up in later episodes, but as for this episode, chapters 1 through 3, what we have, arguably, is the first instance of Midrash, within the Torah itself. Midrash, or in the plural Midrashim, is a homiletic story told by rabbinic sages to explain passages in the Tanakh. Often Midrash comes in to fill in the gaps in the text, precious details of plot or clarification of language or motives, or even a complete revisioning and reinterpreting of what the Tanakh actually says so the verse or story in question stays on message. We tend to think of Midrash as a rabbinic product of scholars in a much later period looking back and considering the biblical text in light of their present context, but one could also regard what Moshe is portrayed to be doing in his farewell address as a form of Midrash as well. He too reviews a text, in this case events described in Exodus and Numbers, and glosses them in order to highlight certain themes. And even though Moshe is supposed to be speaking contemporaneously to the preparations to enter Canaan, there are numerous indications in the first three chapters that Moshe, or the authors formerly known as Moshe, speak with history behind him. I mean them. I mean him. Anyway, he alludes to the spies' intel fail, the defeat at Hormah, the destruction of the Amorites and Bashanites, and the occupation of the east bank of the Jordan. He emphasizes how God brought the Jews through the desert, and for this alone the Jews should adhere to the commandments. This is old hat, or tarbush, or kafia, or whichever headgear you think is appropriate. But Moshe also uses some choice phrases and terms that would have, that really wouldn't be used by somebody who's contemporaneous to these events. He, he refers to being 
across the Jordan, a term generally employed by people living in Canaan, not folks encamping in Moab. Then there are those phrases with a patina of history like, at that time, or until this very day. There is the phrase, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which Adonai gave to them. So what does Moshe mean by did or gave? Shouldn't he have said, will do or will give? And then there's the odd reference to Og's Andre the Giant-sized bedstead in Rabatamon, which proved how Andre the Giant-like Og was. But wouldn't Moshe have seen the man himself, or at least his corpse? And what difference does it make how tall Og was? It didn't in the original account of the encounter, because it wasn't mentioned. Up to now, the Torah has usually been sparse of word and laconic of description, physical or otherwise. There have been few poems or parables. In the whole of the Tanakh, we get very few mentions of physical stature unless it is directly relevant to the story. I'm thinking particularly of Saul, who's about to be publicly crowned the first king of Israel. He's described in the book of Samuel, chapter 10, verse 23, as being, quote, head and shoulders above, a phrase which is used today in modern Hebrew to mean outstanding. One can clearly imagine that scene, the throng of the people, the excitement and anticipation, who's going to be chosen to rule, and suddenly this man appears and his head rises above the mass as he moves to the front to be made Israel's first king. But Saul is not a giant, he's just tall. Which begs the question about what is considered average height if he, being a head taller, is regarded as remarkable. Well, we don't really know, but I guess we can start with what we do know, which is Roman times where we have reliable data as well as skeletons. Jeffrey Cron, a professor in Greek and Roman studies at the University of Victoria, studied a set of 927 adult male skeletons buried in Italy between 500 BCE and 500 CE. The average height, 168 centimeters or five and a half feet tall in life. According to the anthropometric historian John Komlos and his mentor, economist Robert Fogel, over the past 1,200 years, northern Europeans' height could be plotted along a U-shaped curve, from a high around 800 CE to a low sometime in the 17th century and back up again. As Fogel points out, Charlemagne was well over six feet tall, but the soldiers who stormed the Bastille a millennium later averaged about five feet and weighed about 100 pounds. Quote, they didn't look like Errol Flynn and Alan Hale, they looked like 13-year-old girls. You can read more about Kamlos in the New Yorker piece written by Burkhard Bilger entitled The Height Gap. I'll put the link up at the Next Jew and at the Facebook page. According to biologists, we achieve our stature in three spurts. The first in infancy, the second between ages six and eight, and last in adolescence. Access to calories can send us sprouting at these ages, but take away one of 45 or 50 essential nutrients and the body stops growing. So, Depending on how the Jews ate during the desert journey, which from what we've discussed in previous episodes seems like they ate well, or at least they ate a lot of quail and the ever-mercurial man, they would have been able to grow without any kind of impediment. Think of Charlemagne towering at six feet, which would then make the Canaanites, who are described as really tall, well, I guess that's why the Tanakh speaks literally of giants. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, quote, the giants were on earth in those days, and afterward as well, when the divine beings came into the human women and they bore them children. They were the heroes who were of former ages, the men of name. Everett Fox uh, renders Nephilim 
as giants, although other translations are not quite sure how to handle this word. Some play on the root nafal, meaning fall, and refer to them as fallen ones. Some translations just leave it as nephilim, and they are referred to later by the spies as nephilim bnei anak, literally the nephilim, sons of anak, or as Fox renders it, giants, sons of anak, anak being the modern Hebrew word for giant. These tall folk are mentioned here as an example of humanity out of control, men whose height and appetite for evil are completely out of normal proportions. And thus, God concludes that he must reboot humanity, a corrective for both height and temperament, by destroying the world with a flood. There are other examples of giants, but there as here, height is not just a physical description. It denotes rapaciousness, arrogance, and intimidation. I'm referring to Goliath the quintessential biblical giant in the book of Samuel, chapter 17, who, when seeing David, mocks the young shepherd, quote, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. He gets his comeuppance with a rock to the forehead. Now, there are other giants. Genesis, it seems, is full of them, even after the flood. One can summon them by name. Many of these names are still in use today to denote giant, although in the original context it was not clear that it referred to height at all. We only surmise the colossal proportions in later references. And what I'm referring to is actually Genesis chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. This is the part where the five kings rise up to overthrow the rule of Kedorla Omer and his three king allies. And because Kedorla Omer kidnaps Lot, Avraham is drawn into the war on behalf of the rebels who are trying to rescue his nephew. Quote, but then in the fourteenth year came Kidolaomer and the kings who were with him. They struck the Raphites in Ashtar at Kanayim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavakiratayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sen, near, near El Paran, which is by the wilderness. As they returned, they came to an Mispat that is now Kadesh and struck all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who were settled in Hatsats and Tamar. Rephaim, Zuzim, Emim, and the Amorites, it seems that they were giants all, and they are alluded to as such by Moshe directly in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. Perhaps it was the Amorites whom the spies espied during their reconnaissance of the land of Canaan when they reported seeing, quote, men of great stature. They went on, quote, for there we saw the giants of the children of Anak come from the giants. We were in our own eyes like grasshoppers, and thus we were in their eyes. Though that verse in Numbers labels the account as a false report, the Pollyanna and Shehoshua and Kalev do not challenge what the spies said about the height of their future opponents, only the outcome of that conflict. Quote, Do not be afraid of the people of the land, for food for us are they. Their protector has turned away from them, and Adonai is with us. Do not be afraid of them. The prophet Amos explicitly acknowledges the Amorites as, quote, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And if you recall, the Amorites were allies of the Bashanites, whose king was... That's right, Og. Og gets around. Moshe has a little bit of fun with him, describing his fabulous iron bedstead as being nine cubits long and four cubits wide, with a cubit being somewhere between 44.5 and 51.8 centimeters. 
and uh, giving Og a half a cubit on each side so he can lounge comfortably, that would make him at the shortest probably somewhere between three and a half meters to four meters and some change tall. Or in feet, somewhere between 11 and a half to 13 and change feet tall. But many a Midrash author take even greater poetic license in talking about Og. They turn Og into some sort of Highlander type immortal warrior giant. <laughs> Og and his brother Sichon were sons of Achiyah, who was the product of the union between the fallen angel Shamachazai and Ham's wife, Ham, son of Noach. Og was born before the flood, and so I guess was Sichon, and Noach saved him from the flood in exchange for his eternal servitude which might explain Og's identification in other sources as Eliezer, Avraham's servant, a bequeath from King Nimrod, which is funny because Genesis never mentioned that Avraham's trusty aide-de-camp had size 18 cubic feet, or that Og came to the party Avraham threw in honor of Yitzchak's weaning, where he called his host a sterile mule and threatened to crush the honoree with his Brobdignanian thumb. But somehow, Og, Eliezer, breaks free of his vow despite his bad manners, and becomes a king, a reward in this world in lieu of the next for loyal service. As king, he founds 60 cities with walls as gargantuan in height as his feet are long, but as king, Og also leaves Sichon to fight the Jews on his own, confident that his brother would prevail. But when Sichon fails, Og decides to take on the Jews by himself. He uproots a mountain with his hands and carries it on his head as he trundles over to crush the Jewish army. God sends ants to eat their way into the peak, which slips from the top of his head onto his neck, pinning his arms to his sides, whereupon Moshe races out to whack away at Og's ankles with an axe and kill him, because... There can be only one. The rest of Deuteronomy will prove to be less fabulous, but much more instructive, setting out Moshe's expectations for the people through the Decalogue and other special laws and statutes. And the book will conclude with Moshe's death on Mount Nebo, overlooking the land he will not enter, though having seen it. Anybody want a peanut? Yeah! Okay, that, that was a bit of a stretch. Seen it, peanut. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quemen at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quemen at the iTunes Store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come on back and join us next week-ish. Episode 42 on the Book of Deuteronomy, chapters 4 through 7. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?